Good morning. Welcome to Edgewater again this morning. It's good to have you all together this morning. Some of us don't know each other. Hopefully we'll get to know each other a little bit more. And uh, we have the Lord here with us, so that's a good thing. June 2013. It was a Tuesday morning. And I was sitting in the library with Bill and with Phil Howell. If you know Phil Howell, give a yeah. Um. And we were actually talking about this passage that I'm going to preach about today, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. And um, it was one of those mornings where it just kind of landed with a thud in my heart. Because as you're going to see, Paul says something very specific to Timothy. He says, share in suffering. So that a couple of times in chapter 1, 2, as Bill has been preaching the last few weeks, He says specifically share in suffering. And that morning, sitting in the library, I confessed to Bill and to Phil, said, listen, the reality is I have not suffered very much in my life. On top of that, if I kind of take the temperature of my life right now, I, I run from suffering. I really even just try to avoid any type of discomfort or inconvenience. Maybe that's the same for you too. We, we don't like suffering. We definitely don't seek to share in it. So that morning, like I said, that really hit me. I confessed it to those guys and just, just kind of open-handedly said, Lord, what, what are you trying to teach me here? Not expecting the answer to come so quickly because the answer arrived on my back porch that very night. Nat and I had had some um, interaction with a family that lives in the neighborhood, the Williams family. And uh, we'd gotten to know the four brothers pretty well. Three of the younger brothers went to Pierce, uh, the youngest of whom was in Simeon's class, Joey. And they would walk back and forth with us to school sometimes. They lived up on Olive. And we'd gotten to know the older brother a little bit, but he was always pretty quiet, never really said much, but at Edge one night, just a few weeks prior to this, he had kind of started opening up to me a little bit. And then uh, a couple weeks later, we actually went to an alert show um, by UIC, and he said, hey, can we get together and talk? Well, he actually didn't make that appointment that we had set to get together and talk, and I was just kind of wondering, wow, he kind of blew me off. Well, that Tuesday in June of 2013, Eric Williams showed up on our back porch. And um, he rang the bell. It was about 8.30 at night. Opened it up, and he's like, Andy, um, I've got a, I have a ticket to go to my, my step-aunt's house out in the Quad Cities. Should I go? And I said, no, stay here tonight. I, I, I'd, I'd been getting senses that God was doing something in him. I said, stay here tonight. Nat, she can fix something up on the couch, out in the living room. We'll, we'll just see what happens. That night turned into a week, which then turned into the summer, the summer at which he worked here at day camp. And one, one day, the Lord radically brought him to faith that summer. It then extended on from the summer of 2013 all the way until October of 2016. 
three and a half years. Thankfully, we have a very wide uh, hallway in, out, front, in, out, out of our front door, um, a landing, and that was Eric's bedroom for three and a half years. Um, and he became part of our family. He became a son of me and a son of Nat. Um, that was what life was like for us. Now, I, I, don't, I don't put that out for you to somehow give me a pat on the back. Eric and Roxana might be here later on today. He, he works for Amtrak now, and he just had the craziest trip to California and back. Um, but if you see him, they might walk in a little bit later. You can say hi to him. But um, Eric is married now to Roxana, and they have two beautiful kids. Again, I don't say that to get a pat on the back. I say that to say this, that when we, share, when we, when we seek to share in suffering, the Lord sometimes surprises us in how he answers. Okay? Paul was feeling some of this spiritual father to spiritual son. He was feeling that type of way as he was writing to, to Timothy in this second letter. Okay? There were times when Eric was living with us. He was just about to start his senior year in high school. There were times when he was living with us that Nat and I did not know what to do next. Um, he wouldn't mind me sharing this. He, he, he had some rough times. A lot of it was he was just coming out of living in a household where he had been regularly abused growing up. Okay? So he was learning to trust again. And there were times when <laughs> he would be out late or he would not go to school or he would slip off the job over at Mariano's and not show up for work. Or he was paying us rent and he would go deeply into debt with us. Not, not a large amount of rent, just a, a responsible amount to help him manage his finances. And he would slip up. And Nat and I would just be like, Lord, what do we do? And our constant reminder was, God, you brought him to us. And we will be faithful to him. Paul had known Timothy for a long time. He was his spiritual son. But Paul, as he's writing this letter, sitting in a Roman prison, Timothy's across the Mediterranean in Ephesus, struggling to pastor a church. Paul is saying, listen, my son, I'm concerned for you. You can, you can hear it in the tones of his voice, the tones of his pen. I'm concerned for you that you may turn away from Christ, that you might not fulfill the mission. And here's the deal. The reason that he was feeling that was because some of his other guys had already done that. Phygelus, Hermogenes, all these other unnamed people from Asia, they had deserted him. It seems that they were probably with Paul in Rome for Paul's trial, likely to Emperor Nero, but it seems that they walked away. It seems that they did not stick with their spiritual father and in connection did not stick with Christ. We don't know all the details there, but that's what Paul seems to lay out here. And that maybe even Phagellus and Hermogenes actually betrayed him in some way because they get named. The other guys are just the general men from Asia, but these two dudes get named. It may be that they had actually actively 
not come to Paul's defense. And Paul was alone in a Roman jail, worrying that his spiritual son, Timothy, the the one that he loved most out of this entire group, would fail as well. His heart was aching. But he reminds him, you have a sincere faith, Timothy. That was in chapter 1. You have a sincere faith. And I want, you to remind, I want to remind you, Timothy, the, way that, the reason that I suffer is because I was appointed as a preacher and a teacher and an apostle. There are reasons why I'm suffering as I do, and guess what? They're the same, it's the same calling that you've received. So Paul is not just trying to make sure that he still has some sort of fatherly role to Timothy. This is a deeper a deeper call because this isn't just about relationship. It's about the continual teaching of the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. It was important, of utmost importance. But Timothy abandoned him too. So this morning, as we look at this, last, this next section of Paul's letter to his spiritual son, we see the spiritual father encouraging his spiritual son to imitate him even as he imitates Christ. Lord, we ask that you would manifest yourself in our presence today, that, that you would use your word to speak to places in our hearts that we can't even identify ourselves. But we that desperately need you this morning. And would you do your work, Lord, we pray for your glory. Amen. If you would, or maybe if you close your Bible after Felix read, uh, open back up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's on page 995. So these guys abandoned Paul. The, the men from Asia walked away. Figilus and Hermogenes maybe betrayed. We don't exactly know. But let me ask you this question, a more positive question. Have you ever been searched for? Has anyone ever dropped everything and went to look for you. A number of years ago, here in, in ministry, there was a, a dear friend of mine who all of a sudden went missing. And we looked for him. Physically looked for him for a long time. That was our expression of love for our dear friend. We looked for him. Well, there was a man who looked for Paul. Paul sitting in this jail cell, there was a man named Onesiphorus who went and looked for Paul. In contrast to the other two, this guy stuck with him. And not only stuck with him, put himself in Paul's shoes, identified with his chains, and went and found him. And as Felix read, said he was not ashamed of my chains. This is the end of chapter 1. But when Onesiphorus arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. So, it's within this context, Paul writing to Timothy, having the faces of these men in his mind, the ones who abandoned him, maybe seeing their faces turn and seeing the back of their heads as they walked away or as they hid themselves under their cloaks and denied that they ever knew him. This is what Paul is thinking as he's writing chapter 2. But you then, my child, 
chapter 2, verse 1. But you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I want you to see what, how Paul begins here. He addresses Timothy directly. You then, my child. Again, he has these men in mind, but he wants Timothy to not doubt in the least how he, Paul, sees him. My child. Not the one wavering. Not the one that he's fearful will walk away. Not the one that he thinks might abandon him. But his identity in Paul's mind is my child. My child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul wants, to be, wants this to be a heart-to-heart -heart with Timothy. But do you see what he does here? He doesn't tell Timothy, you're better than those guys, so tough it out. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make this happen, Timothy. It all depends on you, dude. No. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You may have had heart-to-hearts with your dad. That's good for dads to do. Part of a father leading in his home is to be imitated so that his kids can look to him and say, that's, that's what it means to, to walk with Christ. That's what it means to be a man who loves the Lord. But it's also initiation. Imitation and initiation initiating things that need to happen. And so Paul initiates this conversation with his son. He doesn't tell him to pull himself up by his bootstraps, be stronger. He says, be strengthened. The strength is coming from somewhere else. This is not who you are, but it is who Christ is, Timothy. Not what you're able to do, but what he has already done in you. What does that mean when he says, be strengthened? Well, like I said, it's something coming from outside of him. But the word itself has this sense of meaning. It's action-oriented. It's not be strong for the sense of being like buff strong, just kind of walk around and flex. No, Paul is saying Christ is strengthening you for the purpose of action. You need to get active and get to work, Timothy. Look at 1.6. Paul earlier in this letter says, For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Think of how this would speak to Timothy. Timid Timothy, it seems to be. Timid Timothy now hears fan into flame. Be strengthened by Christ. Get to work. But I don't know if I can. Oh, Timothy, you can because God has given you his Holy Spirit. And it's not a spirit of fear. What you're going to walk into could cause you to shiver. It could cause you to waver. But don't fall into fear. You have not been given a spirit of fear. Instead, you've been given a, a spirit of power. 
The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you to go and be active and accomplish the things that he wants you to do. And self-control. Timothy, when, when you're in the middle of this, the stuff that Paul addresses throughout the rest of the letter, the messiness in the church at Ephesus, be self-controlled. Lead well. Lead with a spirit that is not afraid, but it recognizes that through Christ you are strengthened with his power and given self-control. This is, this is who Paul is calling Timothy to be. It seems that Timothy was tempted to retreat or to capitulate Maybe just to give up. I'm not Paul. I can't do this. Overwhelmed, he just freezes. Do you ever, you ever feel that way? There's just so much going on in life, and you just can't handle the burden. So instead of getting to work, you just step back. Maybe freeze. Then your heart starts to condemn you. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you getting your life together? Look at all these articles on the internet you can read about making yourself better. Come on, start exercising. Come on, start fixing your finances. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Timothy seems to be overwhelmed and he stops moving forward. But of course, this isn't just dangerous for Timothy. It's dangerous for the church that he's pastoring. Because when you have a pastor that's frozen in battle, the church is going to get slaughtered. It's devastating for his people. Well, you see here in this first verse, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, this is the crucial statement on which the whole rest of the letter hinges. Because you're going to see, as we continue to work through it over the coming couple months, that there's a lot of messy stuff going on in Ephesus. There's a lot of threat to this entrusting the gospel to Timothy and to this church. But he says here, you then, my child, be, be enabled, the enabling of Christ, be strengthened in Christ. He's going to make some hard, actionable demands of Timothy himself as the pastor. Primary of which is to guard the good deposit, the gospel that's been given to him. Timothy, God's put you in this spot. He's entrusted the gospel to you. How are you going to respond? But Paul says this can only happen through Christ's strength. Timothy, you can't do it alone. But it must happen through you. If it does not happen through you, it will not happen. He is, who put, he is the one that Christ has put in the position of pastor in Ephesus. So Timothy, trust in Christ and get to work. But how? I'm going to give you an acronym. It might be a little funny, but you're going to remember it. All right? I can pretty much guarantee you're going to remember it. How does Paul tell Timothy to get to work? He tells him to get fat. All right? Get fat. Now, fat stands for faithful, available, and teachable. Faithful, available, and teachable. You may have heard that before. It can actually be kind of a common acronym used in discipleship books and things like that to just kind of like look at someone and say, is this person on the track to leading a church or leading a ministry? 
Are they growing in maturity in Christ? Are they faithful? Are they available? Are they teachable? Pastor Rich Reed, who was one of the interim pastors here before Bill arrived, he used fat all the time. All right? Well, are they fat? I mean, truly. We'd be talking about in like leadership circles, and Pastor Rich would just say, well, are they fat? And everybody knew that's what Pastor Rich meant. Are they fat? Let's talk about faithful first. Look at verse 2. Paul has this linking conjunction, and, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, Paul was faithful to preach the gospel, and he has entrusted it and is entrusting it to Timothy. Timothy has heard all the way since he was young, he heard from his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. He's heard from others in the church as he grew up in the faith. And most importantly, he's heard from Paul. It's been a combo effort here. All right? And Timothy has been entrusted the good news of Jesus. So he's saying, Paul has entrusted it to Timothy. But, but what is this gospel? I, I use that word a lot, and we use that word a lot here in the church. But it can be just a throwaway word sometimes. Would you look back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 12? Paul says this, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. This reality of the gospel is that Christ came down, God came down and lived a perfect life and then died a death that you and I deserve, Timothy deserved, Paul deserved, the church at Ephesus deserved. Yet Jesus came and was our substitute so that we would not have to take that punishment of death and instead Christ took it for us and then he raised to life to then guarantee our immortality with him. Timothy must be faithful to also preach and to entrust this gospel. He's not just to hear it and kind of keep it to himself, or even just to preach to the church at Ephesus, though that's crucial. He's also supposed to entrust it to faithful, trustworthy men. What's the qualification for these guys? They're supposed to be faithful, trustworthy guys that Timothy had been looking, are these guys faithful? Will they take the gospel and teach it well? The utmost importance, especially in light of Phagellus and Hermogenes. These guys had just fallen off the gospel wagon. They had deserted Paul, and Paul is saying, listen, it's not easy to identify the guys that are faithful, but you got to do it. Step into this hard work, Timothy, and do it. Sometimes when you come to this verse, teachers will say, well, there's, there are four generations of gospel witness here. There's Paul. Paul teaches Timothy. Timothy teaches these men, and these men teach others. I would actually tell you that there are actually five generations here. Where's the fifth generation here? Well, who did Paul get the gospel from? Listen to Galatians. Chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. This is what Paul writes to another church. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
He had to make a point that he didn't just drum this up somewhere. He didn't go into a cave and kind of write this down and say, hey, inspiration, God just gave this to me. No, this was not just from any man. It was not from any man at all. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He didn't get other people's opinion on what he had seen from Jesus. Nor did I even go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles, the other disciples before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is an often missed part of Paul's life. Paul actually went into Arabia after Christ saved him and spent three years with the Lord. And he taught him. And the beautiful thing was, when he came back, what Christ had taught him was what the church still believed. And so the conversion that Paul experienced then strengthened the church because they're like, this guy used to try to kill us. We heard he was converted. Then he left for three years. Now he's back and he's zealous for Christ. Hear this. What we see in Paul is the good news of Jesus Christ, not delivered by any man, but delivered by Jesus himself. And the good news of it is because Paul was saved, none of us regardless of what we've done or thought, the way we've thrown our rebellion against the face of God, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. He can save you. He died to do it. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, delivered to Paul, and he's entrusting it to Timothy to continue moving on. So today is St. Patrick's Day, right? Anybody know the true story of St. Patrick? St. Patrick was, he actually was Irish, but grew up in Scotland. Kind of an upper class family. Didn't really have any, any need for the things of Christianity, even though his dad was a deacon and his grandfather had a role of influence in the church as well. He was kind of a wild child. In fact, in his autobiography, he identifies himself as he identified himself as a sinner, not a saint, as a sinner. Well, when he was 16, they were down on the beach, his family was, and Irish pirates came up. And they kidnapped him and took him to Ireland. They took him 200 miles inland from the coast and made him a slave. For 6 years, he worked as a shepherd and as a farmhand and as a slave to a druid master. They're 200 miles inland from the coast. But after six years, he had a dream. A dream that there was a ship headed for Britain waiting for him on the coast. And that night, through providential circumstances, he was able to escape and he hustled 200 miles back. And when he got to the coast, there was a British ship with its sails unfurled, ready to go home. And he went home. You may have heard that part of the story. What you might not know, and I didn't know before this week, was that he then pastored a church in Great Britain for 20 years. We always think that 
if you know some of the story, that he then turned around and went right back to Ireland. No, he actually grew pretty old. He was 48, past the life expectancy of most men back then. He was 48 when he got another dream, and God called him to go back to Ireland. So he went back to Ireland and served for more than 20 years, going around that country where Christianity was persecuted, Um, The king was not a believer. He went back to his own master and pled with him to accept Christ. And his master, like I said, who was a Druid, went into his house and burned his own house down around him, crying out to his gods, even even as Patrick pled with him to put his faith in Christ. That's the story of Patrick. But what I want to tell you is this too. It goes right along with this sermon. In fact, not just that he came to love Christ through the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for him, but that his time in Ireland, he was the leader of kind of a merry band of evangelists. Let me read this to you from Desiring God. It says this, A notable notable part of Patrick's strategy was that Patrick didn't go solo to Ireland. He went with a team. Just as Jesus sent out his disciples together and Paul and Barnabas went out together, so Patrick assembled a close-knit crew that would tackle the work together in the same location, laboring for the founding of a church. The first church that he planted was in the town of Saul up in north, northern England. Then they would move on together to the next tribe after founding the church. George Hunter calls this a group approach to apostolic ministry. We don't have the record of the details of Patrick's ministry teams and strategies, but Hunter writes, from a handful of ancient sources, we can piece together an outline of a typical approach which undoubtedly varied from one time and setting to another. Patrick's team would have about a dozen members. They would approach a tribe's leadership and seek conversion, or at least their clearance, their allowance, to set up camp nearby. The team would meet people, They would engage them in conversation and ministry and look for people who appeared receptive to hear about Jesus. In due course, one band member or another would probably join with each responsive member to reach out to that responsive member's relatives and friends. They would minister weeks and months among that tribe, eventually pursuing baptisms in the founding of a church. They would leave behind a team member or two to provide leadership for the fledgling church and move with a convert or two, to the next tribe. With such an approach, the church that emerged within the tribe would have been astonishingly indigenous. Isn't that beautiful? This this consciousness that, that Patrick had to plant an indigenous Irish church through the Irish themselves, through the power of the gospel. So faithful, that's, that's the F in fat. How about available? Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Paul presents three analogies here, all right? Verse 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Available to what? Faithful, available. Available to what? Available to share in sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. You might think, what does that mean? Does it mean I can't shop at Whole Foods? Does it mean that I can't have a job? Those seem like civilian pursuits. Civilian has to do with people. 
Do I become a hermit? Do I become a recluse that doesn't have any sorts of relationships with anybody that might need the gospel? Is that what Paul is saying to Timothy? Retreat. No. The word for entangled has the picture of a sword getting entangled in your robe. A soldier wearing a robe, needing his sword because the battle becomes fierce and he can't actually access it. It's stuck. And he's stuck. All right? Paul is saying, don't let your sword get stuck. Don't become entangled in civilian pursuits, in the things that might seem okay. They're civil. But they're catching you. They're distracting you from pleasing the one who has, did you catch that? Enlisted you. That's grace. That's grace. That God would step down in Christ and say, hey, I'm calling you. I'm enlisting you. You did not go to God's recruitment office and say, I'm ready to sign up. No. Christ enlists us. He comes to us and says, listen, I'm going to save you because I have a job for you. I have a purpose for you to bring me glory. And now you are actually my soldier. What should the posture of our heart be in this? Our posture of our, the posture of our heart as Christians should be to please the one who has enlisted us. He is the one that has called us into, our, into his force. Is there any shade of meaning that helps us understand what this entanglement might be a little bit more? I think so. Paul says, share in suffering rather than be entangled. How did Paul in chapter 1 say to share in suffering? He said that he suffers because he preaches and he teaches. He's an apostle. There's a direct teaching, sharing of the gospel connection here that Paul wants Timothy to get. To share in suffering as a good soldier is to have active gospel witness, come what may. And this pleases Jesus. This pleases Jesus. Verse 5. Available to compete according to the rules. Read it with me. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Second analogy. First one was the soldier pleasing Christ. This one is this athlete. And in the Greek games, the rules were not just when you show up at the Olympics, make sure you follow the rules. In order to be an athlete qualified for the Olympic Games, you actually had to promise to train for 10 months leading up to the Games. This helped keep the integrity of the performance high for the Games. It wasn't just a bunch of guys coming out of the local taverna and saying, hey, let's go run a race. All right? No, these were trained athletes who had trained for 10 months to then come and race. That was part of the rules. Paul is saying here, listen, Timothy, you've been prepared. Your mom prepared you. Your grandmother prepared you. I prepared you. Christ has prepared you. So now run the race faithfully. Keep going. Don't take shortcuts. Right now, the situation is offering you some shortcuts. There's some conversations that maybe you don't feel like having. There's some church discipline that you don't want to step into. Timothy, get to work. Run the race that's been put in front of you. The crown belongs to the Lord, so please him 
as you run this race. Be faithful to the gospel. Finish the race. Don't abandon the race as we have seen it happen in the lives of others. Available to share in suffering, available to compete according to the rules, and third, available to work hard and work long. Chapter 2, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Anybody have any farmers in their family? Yeah, a few? I have, I have farmers in my family by marriage. Nat's grandfather was a chicken farmer down in southwest Missouri. And Grandpa Jack was maybe the hardest worker that I've ever known. And I didn't meet him until he was in his 70s. And he was still a hard worker. I can only imagine how hard he worked when he was in his 30s, 40s, and 50s. Farmers are not glorious people. They're people of the earth. Soldiers, there can be some glory in battle. Athletes, definitely glory if you win that race and you get the crown. Farmers, they're working hard anonymously. But without farmers, the people don't eat. But farming isn't a quick snap, let's get this done type thing. Day after day, working hard, doing what I got to do today, working the fields today, go to sleep, wake up early again tomorrow, go out to the fields again, work the fields, go to sleep, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The crops will come a farmer trusts, but they got to put the work in. They have to work the fields in order for the crops, for the harvest to come. What does Paul mean by this first share of the crops? It's debatable. There are a lot of things that might be possible there for what he means by the first share of the crops. I think that it's a possible allusion to the faithful men that he's actually talking about in chapter 2, verse 2. All right? The idea that Timothy will experience the joy of raising those men up in the church to teach, but then he's not going to see the rest of the harvest. They're going to teach others who will teach others who will teach others, and the church will grow and flourish, but he's only going to see the first share. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So we've got faithful. We've got A, available, to share in suffering, compete according to the rules, work hard and work long. And we finish with teachable. Last verse, verse 7. Paul instructs Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think what Paul is doing here is he's acknowledging to Timothy that these analogies might be a little foggy. He might not know exactly right off the bat what Paul is trying to tell him. But remember, Paul knew Timothy really well. And I think he was saying, I know there are areas in your life, Timothy, that these analogies need to fit in. They need, you, need to let, you need to let the Lord teach you through these things that I've told you. You're not complete yet, and I know you're suffering and working through some stuff, but you need to sit down and think and let the Lord teach you. Set aside some time, Timothy. I know you're a busy pastor. I'm not telling you to freeze or be overwhelmed by everything. I want you to just say, hey, I'm going to spend some time. I'm going to ponder what Paul meant by using these analogies and telling me to apply them to myself. And I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to teach me. He'll, he'll form me as a better pastor through this. So let's us do this right now. Let's us think about this. 
Think over what Paul has said. Trust in the Lord will give us understanding and everything. How about for Timothy? First of all, faithful. As Timothy sits down, he's thinking, faithful. Huh? I, I need to be about raising up other leaders in the church. This has got to be my first order of business because I could be the best pastor in the world, but if the gospel dies with me here in Ephesus, the gospel dies here in Ephesus. I've got to be intentional about this. This has got to be my first order of business, in fact. I have to seek out others who can teach as well. All right? Available. Timothy, be, be available to suffering. Okay. I need to use the sword of the gospel. I need to teach and preach knowing that even though my predisposition inside is to avoid suffering, I need to preach and teach boldly whatever happens knowing that suffering probably will come as I am bold with the gospel. And this pleases Christ. All right. Keep thinking on that. Available. Available to compete according to the rules. My mother, my grandmother, they prepared me. Now I've got to run this race rightly. I can't water down what Jesus gave to Paul and what Paul has given to me. This race requires endurance, but Christ has given me what I need. Available to work hard and work long. I've been in Ephesus for a while now. I've got to stay in Ephesus. I've got to keep working the fields here. Things may look really fallow and dead right now. I've got to keep working the fields. Tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, God will bring the harvest. But I think Paul also meant for Timothy to look at verse 8. Because in verse 8, Timothy or Paul writes this, remember Jesus Christ. So, you see the connection there? He just says, Timothy, think about this, and the Lord will give understanding. And then right away he says, remember both mental activities. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. See, Paul is calling Timothy to be fat, to be faithful, available, and teachable. But what's so important here is that he's saying, but listen, remember Jesus Christ. He was the fattest of all. I don't want to be sacrilegious in that, but to continue on with that, he was the fattest of all. He was the most faithful, perfectly faithful. He was the most available, perfectly available. He was the most teachable, perfectly teachable. According to John 5, he did everything the Father asked of him. Everything. And he knew he was walking to the cross. He was perfectly obedient, a life of sinless perfection. So he was faithful. He was available. We know that he went to the cross. He did not shirk the responsibility that he had for saving sinners like us. He was available. I will do whatever the Lord asks me to do. And he was teachable. Teachable, you say? Yes, he was teachable. In Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, the writer of Hebrews says this, 
although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. There's a reality that Jesus developed as he lived. What? The God-man developed? Yes. He developed. He learned. What this, what this learning looked like for Jesus was that he moved from untested obedience, because he had not yet gone to the cross. He was a perfect, the perfect God-man. Untested obedience. He went to suffering, through suffering at the cross. And the suffering at the cross taught him perfect obedience in suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. Can I just say this as a pastoral word to us? Suffering is for our good, ultimately. Christ suffered and learned. James tells the church, consider it all joy when you go through trials of all kinds. Because through them, you are being made complete. If we don't suffer, brothers and sisters, we are missing something of God. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. He was then betrayed by a friend, abandoned by the others. Kind of sounds like Paul. And then he was ultimately abandoned by the father. But he was abandoned by his father my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he could then seek us. So that he could then seek us. But he did not stay dead. He rose again. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Timothy, remember, he rose again. The gospel is true, historically true, because a man rose from the dead and the world was never the same. A man rose from the dead and the world was never the same. His disciples saw him day upon day upon day after his resurrection, and they could not keep from sharing what they had witnessed, according to the entire book of Acts, what they had witnessed because they had seen the living Christ. And most of them went to brutal deaths because they would not stop talking about the risen Jesus. Timothy, he has risen again. What you are teaching, what you are preaching is true. Bank on it. You can see it in your own life. He's resurrected you, Timothy. He's resurrecting people in your church. He resurrected me, Timothy. I was trying to kill the church, and instead, Jesus gave me life. And now Jesus is with you in Ephesus, Timothy. He's actively working with you, strengthening you for action. So, as we bring this to a, a place of understanding, how can we apply this to us? I'm hoping that some of these things have landed on you, these analogies, this fatness has landed on you to consider this week. But I want you to pray for your pastors. Please pray for your pastors. This is, this is the primary point of application. Paul writing to a pastor encouraging him in these ways. And I would ask you to pray for me, for Bill, for our elders, Paul, Joey, Jeremy, Jake, for Jorge as he leads Grace Family up in Rogers Park. Pray for us. Pray that we would be faithful, available, and teachable. Let me just let you in on that a little bit. 
Would you pray that we would be faithful men of the gospel? That we'd be faithful to our wives, faithful to our kids, that we would identify and invest and entrust others with the gospel, that that would be a, a first priority of ours, that we would take discipleship seriously and God would give us wisdom to identify who we entrust it intentionally with. Pray that we would be faithful. Would you pray that we would be available to suffer? Pray against fear that may come when we preach because we don't want to go there. Pray that we would be faithful and courageous when we preach. Pray that we would not be fearful in personal evangelism. Just straight up, I'm a, it's a lot easier for me to preach the gospel than it is for me to, con, to converse the gospel. But there are so many around here that I have connections with, friendships with, that need Jesus in my family, in my friends, people that used to come here to Edgewater years ago that I grew up here with. They need Jesus. But I just admit, it's a lot easier for me to preach the gospel than it is for me to speech the gospel. Pray for us in that way, that we would be evangelists as we are supposed to be. Pray that we would have willingness to lay down our lives for others, that we would resist comfort and conformity, that we would not be satisfied with the status quo, but that we would embrace the costly call of the cross at whatever the cost. Pray that we would compete according to the rules. This is a reminder to those of you who may think, maybe I'll be an elder one day. Maybe I'm considering pastoral ministry. Maybe I'm considering full-time ministry. I would encourage you, how is the Lord training you today? Are you embracing his training? And pray that we would work hard and work long. I've been at Edgewater now for a long time. Bill's been here for nine years, and um, I don't think either of us are going anywhere anytime soon. That was, one of, that was one of Bill's endearing qualities when he came here to Edgewater, was he said, I, I want to be here 25 years or more. I know that he heard at Jorge's assessment this last weekend, um, Pastor Michael Allen from Uptown Baptist said, ask, ask these aspiring church planters, so who's bought their grave plot in Chicago? Are you ready to die here? That's long-term commitment. That's hard-working, long-working farmer commitment. So would you pray for us that we would be open to whatever God has, but at the same time, zealously content and committed to this people and place. And that we would be teachable. That we would dedicate time when there's lots of ministry stuff to do to think and pray on our own and also as elders, that we would shut out the noise, put down the phone, close the laptop, and just be with Jesus. Let him speak the truth of being fat into us. That he would give us wisdom to walk through these strange days and that we would remember Jesus Christ from the dead. I encourage you to pray for us because here's the thing. Pray for us because you are becoming like us. A, a spiritual truth is that as those, that the church goes 
greatly as its pastors go. The church goes as its pastors go. Fat pastors make fat churches. All right? You'll, you'll see later on in chapter 2 when Bill opens the word next week that, that Paul tells Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to avoid irreverent babble. Don't just go around flapping your lips, Timothy. When you're in these debates, these conversations, don't just blah, 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 blah. He says that to Timothy because he says in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God. Do not quarrel about words. He wants Timothy's mouth to be self-controlled so that the church's mouths will be self-controlled. There's this link, and you're going to see it throughout the rest of the letter. Timothy, do this so the church will be like this. He offers a pattern of instruction to his son for the good of the church. Listen, we are beneficiaries of 2,000 years of God faithfully passing the gospel from people down to people down to people. But guess what? We're also closer, 110 years. That's how old, that's how old, that's how old Edgewater will turn this week on Thursday, March 21st. Edgewater will be 110 years old. And if I told you that's because there have been pastors that have passed it along, that would be true, but that would not be all. Because those of you who have been here for a long time know people like Austin Anderson, you know people like Dorothy Dahlman, you know people like Ruth Bertel and Doris Dirksen, you know people that have passed the gospel along generation to generation, some of them from the pulpit, some of them in Sunday school classes, some of them in one-on-one -on -one discipleship, some of them in hospital rooms saying you're about to die but your faith is in Christ who has risen from the dead. This is this is the heritage brothers and sisters that we have here 110 years of God's faithfulness to us through his good news. So would you set aside some time this week to think over this passage yourself? How fat are you right now? Maybe the Lord wants to bring some things up that you need to repent of. We need to say, you know what? I have not been faithful in this, but I need the faithful one to cover my unfaithfulness and grow me in faith. Are you available to suffer, to, comp to compete according to the rules, to work hard and work long? Are you teachable? Just last night, Simeon, my oldest son, natural son, um, he asked me, so dad, why are you calling the sermon like father, like son? You have these three analogies in there. Shouldn't you be talking about soldiers or farmers or athletes or whatever? And I said this, because Paul wasn't ultimately calling Timothy to be a better soldier, to be a better farmer, to be a better athlete. What Paul was calling Timothy to was to imitate him. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. lest the analogies get lost on us. In chapter 4, verse 7, at the end of this letter, listen how Paul echoes these analogies. He, meant, he means for Timothy to imitate him because Paul has followed Christ, the best soldier, the best athlete, the best farmer. And Paul says this, 
I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, basically saying, I'm about to die. The time of my departure has come. And then listen to what he says. I have fought the good fight, soldier. I have finished the race, athlete. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, athlete, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Lord, as we have heard from you today, would you continue to reverberate the good news of Jesus in us? Would you give us time this week Slow us down a little bit so that we can sit and think about these things. That you would teach us. Teach us to be faithful, available, and teachable, Lord. We, we need your ministry in us. We need your ministry in our church to continue to make us more and more like you, Jesus. We look forward to the day of your appearing. We long for that day even when sometimes our lives don't look like it. Bring our lives into conformity with longing for your appearing, Jesus, when you will come back and take your people to be with you. We look forward to that day. Keep us faithful, available, and teachable until then. In your great name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.